0: This afternoon, brothers and sisters, we turn to the gospel according to Matthew. We read two passages from the gospel according to Matthew, first in chapter five, the verses 33 through 37, and then chapter 23. The verses 16 through 22. So the first passage is from Matthew 5, verse 33 to 37. This is the word of God. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We now turn to chapter 23 and read the verses 16 to 22. Chapter 23, verse 16 Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it." So far, this afternoon again, brothers and sisters, we have our focal point in the third commandment of the law of our God, and what we confess regarding it in Lord's Day 37. Lord's Day 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we find on page 554 in the back of our Book of Praise. There we echo the Word of God, where we confess, but may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner? Yes, when the government demands it of its subjects or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's Word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures? No. No. A lawful oath is a calling upon God who alone knows the heart to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. That's Lord's Day 37. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Last week, when we spoke on the Third Commandment in the context of Lord's Day 36, we confessed we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence so that we may rightly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in all our words and works. That principle, brothers and sisters, governs our whole life we said. The third commandment, we said, does not just pertain to a word, an expletive, a a blasphemous remark. It applies to all our words and works. With it, the Lord seeks a life that is honoring His name, while a life that's not lived in fear and reverence to Him is a curse all around. So, if that's how comprehensive the Third Commandment is, and we dealt with it accordingly, why another Lord's Day on the Third Commandment? And why one specifically on the matter of the oath? Well, a simple answer to this question, brothers and sisters, could suffice with pointing at the historical background of the Heidelberg Catechism. This was a very important issue in the struggle between the Reformed and the Anabaptists at that time. May we swear an oath by the name of God? That was the question. And since it pertains to the name of God, a Lord's Day was added to the Third Commandment. Then the Reformed confessed regarding this very question that yes, when it's done in a godly manner, and when the government or the circumstances require it, we may swear an oath to God's glory and for our neighbor's good, as long as you don't swear by saints or other creatures as the Roman Catholics were used to do. However, is the question that simple, really, beloved? Could we, therefore, not suffice with just mentioning it in a sermon on a combination of Lord's Day 36 and 37, as we do sometimes? Well, the question certainly warrants a special Lord's Day, especially for Reformed people, I should say. For are we not the people who live by the Word and who insist to uphold God's Word? Do we not want to adhere to it as closely as possible? You see, what the Anabaptists stressed in those days is just that point. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 34, But I tell you, do not swear at all. Not at all. The Heidelberg Catechism does not respond to that important argument directly, except perhaps in the matter of swearing by saints or other creatures. There, these words are used in the proof text as a footnote. Of course, for the Lord Jesus also mentions that part in his Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 35 and following. His rule, however, is, do not swear at all. Why did he say that? What did he mean by that? Then as Reformed people will also bring into the picture the other Scriptures to which our Lord's Day refers. Yes, then we will see that our Lord's Day does not deal with an old issue but with a very relevant matter that we will have to consider seriously in our life of thankfulness. So I speak to you this afternoon on this theme. We speak our words in the sight of God. And then we pay attention to two points. First of all, the rule about swearing oaths. And secondly, the reason for swearing oaths. So I summarize the message of this afternoon as follows. We speak our words in the sight of God. We see the rule about swearing oaths and the reason for swearing oaths. So first of all, the the rule about swearing oaths. But I tell you, do not swear at all. That's the rule the Lord Jesus articulated brothers and sisters when he paid attention to the practices among the people of the Lord in his time. In his sermon on the mount he responded to various practices that he that had developed over time. In regard to the swearing of an oath some strange things were done. How come? Well, it all started with a matter or as a matter of the third commandment indeed. How do you use the name of the Lord? That's the name by which the Lord their God had manifested Himself to them. And that name should not be used in vain, as empty, as meaningless. Indeed, for that name is so holy and so much to be feared. Although the Lord gave this name to his people as a name to comfort them and encourage them, they grew to be afraid of that name. The Lord wanted to convey to his people that he is the I Am, the God who is there, who is there for his people, the God whom you can trust and who delivers you. His people, however, had looked upon that name more and more as the name of the Holy One, the God who is a consuming fire. They hardly dared to use his name. Yes, a practice developed in which the Jews skipped that name or changed it from Yahweh to Adonai, that is, the Lord with small letters, meaning master or ruler only. Rather than running the risk of using the name in vain or to wear it out and pronounce it thoughtlessly, they did not use it at all anymore. Of course, we may appreciate some of these sentiments, beloved, and agree about the holiness of that name, yet the result was that the Lord's name disappeared from public life almost completely. Indeed, they came to the point that they would not use the name of God for public life at all anymore. Not in courts and related settings either. The fact, therefore, that the high priest in Matthew 26 swore an oath and adjured the Lord Jesus by the name of the living God to tell them whether he was the Christ was a striking exception to the rule, to the practice. Normally, they would not swear an oath by the name of God. He was too mighty and holy and too much of a consuming fire. If you used his name in an oath, you certainly had to keep that oath, otherwise you're playing with fire. Hence, God's name as a basis for security and truth among men disappeared. With it, also the usefulness of the oath became more and more inflated. In fact, a practice developed of special oaths and subtle expressions in order to make their vows and promises or assure of the truth of their words, but not in order to maintain fidelity and truth. Their words became inflated, their promises devaluated, and they swore their oath by religious sites and symbols. What do you do? When you don't want to mention the name of God or the name of the Lord, beloved, you mention heaven, where God dwells, or the temple of the Lord, which is his house, or Jerusalem, the city of God. That's still close. So these oaths became valid. Also oaths in which the word Corban consecrated, was used, for then it's related to a sacrifice to the Lord, an offering on the altar of the Lord, for instance. Yet the oaths were not the same. Their power and meaning were not the same, for God had been taken out of it. Thus the people felt less bound to avow a promise or an oath sworn in that way. Although their initial intention was one of reverence and respect, in the end, they dishonored God and excluded Him from their life altogether. That way, their words were no longer reliable, their promises no longer trustworthy, and their oaths a farce. For the Pharisees, the new usage was a compromise with the most pious intentions. Yet to the Lord Jesus, it was a disgrace and a deceptive situation. Then the Lord Jesus, beloved, said, That's not good. You can't do that. For you will still end up with the Lord. You can't get rid of God's presence that easily. He showed the people how they had lost awareness of God's presence completely. As if God is only there when you use his name. Is he not there as well when you mention the heaven in which he dwelt or the temple in which he is worshipped or the city that's called after his name? He is there even when you don't mention his name. Hence, I tell you, do not swear at all. Why not? Well, people who swear want to say, as it were, what I am saying now, I am saying in the sight of God. People who add that to their words convey in that way the weightiness of their words. Like they said in the Old Testament, may God do to me Yes, even more severely, if I lie, or if I don't keep this promise. And they would make the gesture of God beheading them to assure the hearers that God may hold them to it. As if to say that God only hears them say it when they use so strong a formula as if we do not walk and live and speak in the sight of God always. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus restores the people of God to the legitimate life in the kingdom of God. In Christ, our life in the sight of God is restored, and the deep meaning of the will of God is restored. He teaches his people to live in the Lord, to pray to the Lord, and to depend on the Lord always. God is everywhere, and we are always close to the Lord with all our words and deeds, and always when we promise something to the Lord or to our neighbor. And then the oath can disappear then the people of the Lord no longer need to resort to its use. Indeed, beloved, that's why the rule, as a rule, we don't swear an oath in the church. For here we live in God's sight together. No, that's not our work or our doing, that's Christ's work. We live in him and for him and through him, and together we obey God's commandments. Christ fulfilled the law for us and in our place, and he gave us his Holy Spirit to give us the mind of Christ and to teach us the life of Christ. Then you learn to love each other, trust each other, and become reliable to each other. Then your yes will be yes, and your no will be no. Then you don't have to resort to all sorts of vague excuses and escapes to get away from your commitments and promises. Then you don't do your own thing, set your own standards, and then you lose your trustworthiness, and we lose the security and safety of the truth in our life together. By the grace of God and through prayer to God and with the Spirit of God, we learn to live in the truth of God. That's the gospel of the kingdom rule, brothers and sisters, as the Lord Jesus proclaims it to the church. And that's wonderful when you can live together that way. It makes you secure in Christ and secure with each other. When you live by this word of God, you will also live by your words, given in the sight of God. Then we think of the vows we have made before God and his holy congregation at baptism, public profession of faith, and installation as office bearer. In Christ, we are able to keep those vows and we also think of those everyday situations in which we promise to do something for each other, to help or to visit or to pray for each other, yes, then also our orders, our contracts and business deals will be kept. But now let's look at the second point, the reason for swearing oaths. It's wonderful indeed, beloved, when we don't swear oaths. That's the rule. Let's hear that gospel of the kingdom first. Then the next question is, of course, how well do we apply that rule? How much do we live from these riches of Christ? How strongly does the Word of God impact on our life? How faithfully do we live by the words and vows we have given? We have the Lord for the security of our life and his word as the source for our life. But how much do we rely on him or use his word? Indeed, then we have to confess again to the brokenness of our life, to the small beginning also of the new obedience that the holiest have in this life. That's why we need something to maintain and, pro- and promote fidelity and truth. Then we need something that will establish the truth, give security, and create reliability. Yes, we need that even and also in the church. Our Lord's Day mentions it correctly, beloved. Also, the saints in the Old Testament and New Testament have used the oath. The Apostle Paul swore an oath three times in his letters. And when you look them up, you will find examples of circumstances of confusion and slander and ill will. His epistle to the Corinthians, for instance, is a case in point. Paul had made plans and made promises in accordance with these plans, but he could not carry out these plans. That's when people said, this Paul is wishy-washy. He says yes and does no at the same time. He's not trustworthy. That's when Paul says, as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes or no. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 18, a few verses later, he again says, I call God as my witness. Paul swears an oath, clearly, and you can almost sense the pain it gives him to do so. Among the people of God, in the church of God, this should not be necessary. Yet, he had to. For his authority as apostle of Christ and his message of the faithfulness of God's promises in Christ were at stake. That's why he swore an oath. He had no choice. Necessity required it of him. That's the reason why. Ever since sin entered this world, beloved, the lie has taken root in the world of God. As a consequence of sin and a lie, the evil and misery resulting from it must be controlled. The Lord gave his word for that purpose. He also gave his name in order to secure truth and fidelity among men. In Deuteronomy 10, he said, You will fear the Lord your God and serve him Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. And they did, his people. Abraham did, and Jacob, David, and Jonathan. Yes, even the people of Israel collectively. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus did, as we have seen, before the high priest, and Paul Yes, the letter to the Hebrews mentions that God himself did. For God is concerned with the truth. God is eager to establish peace, order, and security. That's what he gave the government for too. Now, then a government is not there only to control evil, only because of man's depravity, as Belgian confession Article 36 confesses. there would have always been structures and authorities and ways to order and regulate life among men. In a sinful society, however, the government, too. Needs to overcome the powers of the lie and establish fidelity and truth. It also needs the oath for that. The government, the judge, and the justices of the peace who install people in positions of trust, of authority, of safety, etc., need to know are you reliable, trustworthy, Well, it is in these and similar circumstances of necessity, emergency, and safety, brothers and sisters, that we require the use of the oath. Yes, as we have seen, even in the church, with all its riches and blessings and merits of Christ, we are not always living as richly as we should. However, then we may see the richness and power of the name of God in those situations as well. When this name is used by calling upon the name in the swearing of the oath. It's the only name that gives security, safety, order, and peace. So help me God. That's still the most emphatic expression of our dependence upon the Lord for life and truth, and security. Oh, I know, it's on the way out. God's name must be removed from this world, ruled by the liar from the beginning. Yet, he still is the only one who can restore law and order, peace and security, truth and stability in the midst of a chaotic world. And indeed, we are the people who know and confess this. You see, brothers and sisters, then the Reformed people in the days of the Great Reformation said, therefore we may use the oath, while the Anabaptists said, we can't. That was not only because they isolated Jesus' words from its context and meaning, ignoring also the other Scriptures, but it was even more because they had written of this world lost in sin. They said that citizens of the kingdom of God have nothing to do any longer with the citizens and government of the kingdom of the earth. Hence, they refused the oath just as they rejected the government, the army, etc. The Reformed, however, knew that this world was God's world, which he loved so much that he gave his only Son to redeem this world. The Reformed confessed the name of God and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the redemption of this world, a name that is able, above every name, to bring deliverance and salvation into this world. Hence, in the light of Matthew 5, we confess, beloved, that in this world we are always living in the sight of God with our words. However, this world still is a broken world, a miserable world, and in it we need this emergency measure of the oath. That's why God has given that authority to the government as he has given authority to bear the sword. Although the gospel preaches love and the word of God establishes peace on earth, in the brokenness of this world, we need the sword still too. God also gave that to the government. Then it is striking that the Anabaptists said about the sword as well, that they would not bear them. As Reformed people, however, we confess that we swear an oath when necessary and we bear the sword when necessary. Yet, in the church of God, we do have the privilege of getting a foretaste of a life in a world where peace reigns. Yes, as people of the Lord, we also know the richness of a life in the sight of the Lord where security, fidelity, and truth reign. It's a foretaste of the world for which we long and which God will establish as his kingdom on the new earth. Righteousness and truth will reign there. Yes, all of life will be filled with the name of God and will be lived to the glory of God and for our neighbor's good. Amen.